there are stories about what happened. It's true. All of it. The dark side. A Jedi. It's calling to you. Just let it in. One would have to be living a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away to not be aware of the hype, hoopla, and hysteria surrounding the release of Star Wars The Force Awakens, the seventh overall feature film entry in the near 40-year-old Star Wars saga, and a new fulcrum point or bridge of sorts, it functioning both as a continuation of the George Lucas-created Star Wars universe and a reboot of the franchise for a new era the first installment of a new film trilogy, and the hub from which a new generation of standalone filmic adventures featuring offshoot characters will originate. Now, if you think that's impressive, check out some of these numbers. In 2012, George Lucas sold the Star Wars universe to the Walt Disney Corporation for an unheard of $4 billion. But that's nothing compared to the over $37 billion the franchise, to date consisting of only six films, has already pulled in since the original movie exploded into the public consciousness in May of 1977. New characters, new adventures, and scenarios kept the coals of interest stoked. And among the most popular stokers was a series of over 110 Star Wars novels over the last four decades. The most popular and critically acclaimed by novelist and novelizer Alan Dean Foster. Novelizer, you say? Yes, the art and craft of expanding films and their screenplays into full-length printed novels. But movies are movies, and books are books, right? Two different mediums, each with their strengths and weaknesses when it comes to holding an audience's attention. As proof, there's the famous quote by James M. Cain, author of The Postman Always Rings Twice and Bubble Indemnity, wherein during an interview he said, People tell me, don't you care what they've done to your books? And I tell them, they haven't done anything to my books. They're right up there on the shelf. They paid me, and that's the end of it. Well, okay, James, but how about when it's the other way around, and the book is adapted from the movie? That's when things can get, as we used to say growing up, seriously fugly. But movie-to-book adaptations, or novelizations, aren't new. And in some regards, they've always carried a stigma, even to those who really enjoyed reading them. A guilty pleasure, if you will. Sort of a film's PR tie-in, or the lesser-than book next to another book written up on your shelf by someone in your high school curriculum reading list. This often even when the movie-to-book adaptation is written just as well, or even better. Some famous examples including Isaac Asimov's Fantastic Voyage or Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey, both so popular and critically acclaimed that to this day, many incorrectly believe that the films were based upon the books rather than the other way around. If you're a lover of films or books and have frequently crossed that bridge linking the two, you know the work of Alan Dean Foster. Arguably for the last 40 years, the most popular and critically acclaimed author of film novelizations Some of his most popular titles include Dark Star, The Thing, Outland, The Last Starfighter, 
Alien and Aliens, Clash of the Titans, The Black Hole, Starman, Alien Nation, Pale Rider, Crow, and the Transformer series. He's had a lengthy association with Paramount's Star Trek universe, penning ten novels based on the animated series and two from the J.J. Abrams reboot films, and he's the original scripter of the early draft story which became the franchise's first big-screen adventure, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Hardly just a writer of novelizations, Foster is also the author of many globally popular original science fiction and fantasy series. Among them, the Spellsinger novels, the Icerger trilogy, 14 Pip and Flicks books over 25 years, and the best-selling standalone fantasy adventure yarns Cyberway, Glory Lane, To the Vanishing Point, and the urban set sci-fi drama Slipped. Best known to many, however, as the author of the most acclaimed of the Star Wars books, the 1977 novelization of the original film, at the time ghostwritten by Foster and credited to George Lucas, as well as the immediate original novel follow-up, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, for a while considered the possible basis for the next film, fans presently await with bated breath the imminent release of his novelization to Star Wars The Force Awakens. Well, breathe a little easier, young Padawans, for the Force is strong with Alan Dean Foster, and we've got him for the next near hour, diving into all things Star Trek, Star Wars, sci-fi lit, and sci-fi film. I'm Craig Jameson. And I'm Jim Delaney. And welcome to an all-new episode of The Movie Sneak, Awakening the Force of Alan Dean Foster. from history history did chris columbus say he wanted to stay home no what if the wright brothers thought that only birds should fly and did galoka think the yulus were too ugly to save who's galoka listen centauri i'm not any of those guys i'm a kid from a trailer park if that's what you think then that's all you'll ever be Fans of science fiction and fantasy cinema will recognize that as being from The Last Starfighter, one of the most charming films of the 1980s, and one of the most charmingly entertaining movie novelizations from the pen of tonight's guest, Alan Dean Foster. Welcome to the latest installment of The Movie Sneak. I've been looking forward to this one for some time as, well, we all have artists whose work we grew up loving, and to a certain degree you can say help to inspire you to do what you currently do. And among a handful of all-time writers I grew up loving, tonight's guest has definitely been one of my faves. From his legendary novelizations like Outland, The Thing, Alien Nation, and more, to the family road trip from hell fantasy novel to The Vanishing Point, to the heartbreakingly magical urban drama Slipped, to his Star Wars contributions, Alan Dean Foster's been a major part of my creative upbringing. So it's uh, pretty much a thrill getting to chat with him tonight. 
Same here, man. Big time. And in addition to our sit-down with Alan, the podcast troupe We Found Microphones is back, this time binging and commenting on Aziz Ansari's Netflix comedy series Master of None. And our musical guest this evening is musical phenom Farzam Salami. Beginning as a child prodigy, today Farzam is a composer and multi-instrumentalist virtuoso whose work in recent years for film, television, and the stage has been generating quite a bit of well-deserved acclaim. Prepare your ears and open your hearts, and we think you'll be as blown away by Farzam's talent as we are. So, without further ado, let's get this bad boy in gear. We Found Microphones presents Master of None Review, featuring Kevin, Casey, Jake, and Jack. Ooh, what's up, guys? Uh, Yo! Our second review, pumped. We're doing Master of None, Netflix show, Aziz Ansari. Fantastic, pretty good, right? All right, solid. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Let's jump let's in. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's, let's just talk chitty about it. Chitty chats. Oh, fuck, fuck. Um, the condom broke. But you didn't finish, right? It's fine. Yeah, but there's those little guys that come out before the big party, you know? I want to get the pill. Me and, uh, this young lady were... Uh, yep, there it is. Oh, no, no, please, I, I got it. My treat. We need you to do an accent. You mean like an Indian accent? You know, Ben Kingsley did an accent in Gandhi, and he won the Oscar for it, so... But he didn't win the Oscar just for doing the accent. I mean, it wasn't an Oscar for best Indian accent. You see the social network? The Indian guy is a white guy. No, no, I read that he's 116th Indian. Who cares? If you go back far enough, we're all 116th something. I'm probably 116th black. You think they're going to let me play Blade? You want kids? Part of me is like, yeah, it'd be an amazing experience. Hey, 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 don't, don't yell out people's ethnicities. Who here did see everything? I saw, I saw all everything. Everything. Okay, they up saw to episode seven, seven myself. Yeah. All right, I'm Ten up to, and a half hour I'm up episodes. to five, so, yeah. I mean, I'm not still... A lot, not a lot to do, right? It's I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty consistent. Yeah, it's I mean, pretty, yeah, it's pretty consistently mm-hmm. the yeah. thing. Um, so, who loved it, though? I really, really liked it. Okay. I liked it a lot. Oh, though. not love, though. Not, I'm not ready to say love. I'm this is an interesting because this yeah. is an interesting thing because normally, I guess, like normally, we, we it's like this is great. Let's just talk about how great yeah. this is. But mm-hmm. you did not. You loved it. Mm. You very much enjoyed it. I'm as it. close to love as I think anyone can get. Right I'm now. liking <laughs> it more. Like I finished it, and I'm liking it more and more the more I think about it. If that makes sense. Like at first, I was like, oh, I don't know about this show. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I think sitting on it. Like it's doing, and I'm, like, mm-hmm. I'm really starting to like yeah. it. Like just thinking about like the chronological, just all the episodes together as yeah. a whole. I think part of it is that I went into it expecting it to just be a comedy, and like it, it, it makes you feel things. Mm-hmm. And it does like I think yeah. somebody I described to somebody I was like, oh, it's pretty good if you like um, Aziz Ansari, but also it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. No, it it's totally is kind of a bummer. Yeah. I mean, he's. He's he's not like the best. He's not like the yeah. best dude in this. No, like, he's not, yeah, he's not, not at all. Not at all. He's not a perfect person. Not Which interesting, Jack. Guy, yeah. Jack, I think has the most negative opinion out of yeah. him. I have the most. Because ne- you're a negative Nancy. I <laughs> liked the show in the end. At first, I hated it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I downright was like, I can't. I can't believe I have to watch more episodes of this show. Yeah. Pilot. Was pilot. pilot. Mm-hmm. It, the pilot just didn't get. It was seemed yeah. like more apathetic to the world and kind of yeah. like mm-hmm. just. There was a lot of dead air for me and a lot of non-jokes. But then afterwards, like episode three or four, I understood what it was. Yeah, I understood it. Yeah. For me, it worked best when it was trying to be sweet, especially when it was Aziz and Noel Wells. Mm-hmm. 
who oh is a, an Noel SNL Wells. alum. SNL alum. Great. Let's shout her out. She was fantastic. I also Amazing. think that you are not jaded enough for this show. I think oh, I this show <laughs> is for jaded, jaded millennials. Like this is like that's the target audience. So I feel like you're just too upbeat for this show. Like, no, I totally like, agree. Everything, it doesn't suck enough for you to just be like... Like, my personality, for those who don't know, is like lollipops and rainbows. <laughs> or like, I love that stuff. Like, yeah. Like, there's a parallel universe where you're like a youth pastor, I think, somewhere, where you're in a carpeted <laughs> gymnasium just playing the guitar. Like... <laughs> Like, I feel that's your personality. So. And that's what I like in my shows. I like my shows to be upbeat, kind of have a good message. This mm-hmm. was more, it was, I won't say it's negative. I will no, say no, apathetic no. is the world I, th- I would go. It's just this yeah. is how the world yeah. is. I think that's what I didn't like at first. The pilot is like, it, there's not a lot of happiness no. in it at all. Mm-hmm. No. And I was like, oh, it's just like one of those shows. It's just like complete downer. But it's not. <laughs> there's these moments that are very like heartwarming. And, yeah. But it balances out because it's just very real. And it, yeah, it, and totally for agree. the pilot, it was a lot of Aziz Ansari doing that thing where he's the baby gangster. <laughs> where it'll be saying, you know, I need like my SpaghettiOs, right? Oh, I need my SpaghettiOs. <laughs> and then yeah, no. end of scene. You know, <laughs> no. if, I had, if I had to pitch a show, I was thinking about it. Um, it's like Louis, if Louis was a 30-year-old minority living in New York. Like, yeah. If that's yeah. what he was. Because I love Louie, and I think that's why I love this show this much, because I think if I hadn't seen Louie, I wouldn't get this show the way I get it. Right. Hmm. Louie really helped me, like, kind of understand where the show was going and, like, well, what it's, it's insightful. about. it's insightful. It's insightful like Louie's yeah. insightful. Like Louis. It really is. Yeah. It, it, like, it's very self-referential in its, like, Super. material, and that's, like, the point. It's mm-hmm. satire. Yeah. You yeah. know? So I feel 100%. like I'm definitely not going to recommend this to my mom, <laughs> but, like, if you're that type of person, like, if you've ever been on Snapchat or like if you have like an if you're a millennial if you're like that kind of person you, you exist in the modern world I feel like there's at least one part of the show that yes. you will relate to yeah. you can you know? on like to I it. definitely relate to just like googling how wait can you get pregnant like that like, in the, <laughs> like I've been there before <laughs> yeah. so that's like definitely part of it I think like overall positive yeah, feel yeah. About oh the yeah show. no I like overall it's yeah. like certainly it's it's got a niche audience and I think it can definitely find its feet. Yeah. So I'm like I think we can I think we're we're approaching the thirty seconds, so I think we can give like a just overall consensus. Would you recommend this show to general friends? I yes, would I definitely I've would, definitely yeah. told people to watch it. I will mm-hmm. say it's a good show, not exactly for me, but I appreciate it what it is. Cool. Right. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Nice. You can catch it on Netflix. Thanks, guys. And if you've been digging a little bit of We Found Microphones here, you've got to check out a whole lot more at their very own SoundCloud channel. They, in recent days, taking some awesomely in-depth looks at The Martian, Steve Jobs, The Good Dinosaur, and a few days ago posting their own nifty version of a Christmas special. (laughs) We think you'll be as impressed as we are. Coming up next, musical guest Farzam Salami and our interview with The Thing, Alien, Star Trek, and The Force Awakens novelist Alan Dean Foster. Keep it, as they used to say back in the day, tuned to the movie sneak. We'll be right back. Nothing human could have made it back here in this weather without a guide. Let's open it now. Why are you so damn anxious to let him in here? Because it's so close. Maybe our best chance to blow it away. No, just let him freeze to death outside. Child, what if we're wrong about him? Why then we're wrong?
Sneak is honored to present musical guest Farzam Salami with Chapman Stick and Tumbak.
have more from Farzam, including a little mini-interview and bio later in the show. Radio's gone. So are the choppers. Yeah, we're completely cut off. All we can do now is hold up till spring, wait for the rescue team. No, we don't wait. Somebody in this camp ain't what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. So how do we know who's human? If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? Well, first of all, I've got to say, Alan, uh, thank you for doing this so much. And if you'll forgive just one quick second of what uh, Jordy and Star Trek First Contact called uh, hero worship, uh, i got to say that I have been a huge fan of Alan Dean Foster for years. Pleasure to be here. Or there, as the case may be. <laughs> I actually, I guess the first Foster novel that I read, not knowing that it was Foster at the time, was the original novelization to 1977 Star Wars. And the first one that I knew I was reading a Foster novel would be The Thing in 1982, based on the screenplay by Bill Lancaster and the film by John Carpenter. And I was just so blown away by the attention to detail. Uh, I was a screenwriting student at the time, and at that time you learn, you got to cut to the quick, boom, get right to it, get right to it, trim, trim, trim. But I was just blown away by uh, the amount of detail that the Foster novels had brought to the story, brought to the characters and what have you. After that, of course, I read Outland and Starman and The Last Starfighter and Pale Rider and Alienation and on and on and on. And eventually graduated to the Alan Dean Foster original novels. My two favorites to this day still being To the Vanishing Point and especially uh, Slipped. So like I said before, a little bit of hero worship. And thank you for uh, joining us here today at the Movie Sneak. I want to start with a quick Alan Dean Foster bio of sorts. And Jim, if uh, you want to jump in, please just hop on in any time. I don't want to bogart the whole affair here. I am currently reading... From the About the Author uh, segment at the uh, end of the Thing novelization. And Alan, let me know if any of this has changed since then. Anyway, Alan Dean Foster, a Scorpio, hmm, says quite a bit, <laughs> was born in California where he completed his schooling. After serving a hitch in the U.S. Army, he worked as a copywriter in a public relations advertising firm. Since then, he has taught motion picture history and writing at Los Angeles City College as well as literature at UCLA. And skipping down to a red belt and Tang Sudu, a form of Korean karate, Foster's hobbies are backpacking, body surfing, hmm, a little point break there, and basketball. He and his wife recently deserted the Pacific Coast to live in the Arizona desert. So can you give us a little background on how you became a novelist and eventually began the art and craft of uh, novelizations? Well, I was supposed to be a lawyer, but I got saved. There you go. Lots of lawyers in the family. I had lots of recommendations. It would have been a fairly easy transition from university for me. But my senior year at UCLA, I discovered that I could get four units for writing, whether it was in the film writing department or any other writing department. That's the same as four units of physics. Hmm. I mean, that's a great deal if you're a university student looking to fill out uh, your requirements. And... I took a lot of film writing courses. While I was doing that, I tried a couple of pieces of short fiction, and one of them sold. 
And I thought, well, this is fun. Let's see if I can get into the UCLA graduate screen, screenplay writing program. And then I'll go to law school after that. And while I was in the screenplay writing program, I sold another couple of short stories. And it began to occur to me that this was a lot more enjoyable than getting up early in the morning and putting on a suit and a tie <laughs> and looking up precedents for the rest of my life. So I applied. I got in. I had a lot of fun. I met a lot of interesting people, uh, Fritz Lang, most notably, probably. Nice. Yeah, that was, you know, today our films are yeah, him cool. and Metropolis, and our guest speaker today is Fritz Lang. Wow. I mean, that's like today our guest is Leonardo da Vinci. It sounds so weird to say today. Yeah. He was very funny, by the way. He had a very, uh, a very Teutonic sense of humor, but he was very funny. <laughs> guy. That's another story. <laughs> anyway, while I was there, I thought, well, I might, why don't I try writing a novel? I've, I've sold a couple of short stories, and in 20 years... Right. Around what time, uh, approximately, what year are we talking about right now? 1969 to 1970. Oh, okay, okay. Thank you. Anyway, MFA degree at UCLA is two years, but I went two summers, so I compressed it. Uh, I thought, well, I'll try writing a novel, and in 20 years, when I'm at parties as a lawyer, people say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working on a novel. It's a great you know, conversation piece. <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, while I was in basic training, it sold to Betty Ballantyne, who was still running the science fiction program at Ballantyne Books at that time. And so I thought I'd give it a shot for a couple of years and get a part-time job if I could and see what happened. And uh, 45 years later, this is what happened. <laughs> as far as the novelizations go, Judy Lynn Del Rey took over the editing of the science fiction line at Del Rey Books. At that time, it was still called Ballantine Books. And someone prior to her coming in had bought the book rights to a really, really bad movie called Luana. It's an <laughs> no. Italian, Italian, supposedly female Tarzan movie, and uh, encompassed all the worst aspects of Italian filmmaking. <laughs> And Judy Lynn knew that I had an MFA degree in screenwriting and thought, since I knew my way, presumably, around a screenplay, maybe I could turn this into a book so that Valentine wouldn't waste whatever money they spent on the book rights. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, uh, I'll give it a shot. Send me a copy of the screenplay. And they said, well, there is no screenplay, but we'll set up a screening of the film for you. I was still living in Los Angeles at that time. So they did at the office of the producer who had bought the American rights. And the film, of course, was in Italian, <laughs> with no subtitles. Brilliant. So I'm sitting in this room watching this film, uh, really amazed at how bad it is. And uh, what am I going to do with this? Well, the young guy who had been signed to do the publicity for the film was a fan. And he had enough sense to hire Frank Frazetta to do the advertising art for the film. Brilliant. So Frazetta produced two original oils, which are all reproduced in various Frazetta art books, none of which are called Luana. <laughs> so I guess he was as embarrassed by it as I was. <laughs> uh, but they're terrific, typical Frazetta paintings. And Del Rey had the rights to use them on the book. One is on the cover, one is on the back cover. And what I ended up doing was novelizing the cover. <laughs> <laughs> because the cover, uh, if you think female Tarzan, is a typical Frazetta. The female Tarzan in the movie is this diminutive little Vietnamese girl who's about four feet nine inches tall. Oh, and Lord. It's only on screen for about ten minutes anyway. 
the rest of it is the Italian actors and actresses wandering around the jungle and having various encounters. And on the basis of that, that was my first novelization. The kicker to that is somebody from Disney didn't read on the lower half of the back cover that this was a book version of a film and contacted Del Rey trying to get the movie rights. <laughs> so Judy Lynn and I had both a good cry and a good laugh over that. That was the first novelization. That is hilarious. I got to say, I was sat here with a big dopey smile onto that whole story. That's just classic. That's the kind of stuff that can't happen anymore. Like my first screenwriting teacher literally walked into William Morris in this, in 74 and said, I hear I need an agent and I'm a young screenwriter. And they like signed him on the spot. Just the kind of thing that would happen back then, but not. no, 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 no. That's, you know, a riot, but uh, yeah. So that's how it all got started. As far as novelizations, the second one, uh, since the first one apparently did as well as they could expect, probably based on the Frazetta cover, they had bought the rights to this student film, which was being cleaned up a little and released commercially, called Dark Star. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool, cool. Dark Star was John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon's USC graduate film school project, which grew and grew and grew, and they ended up borrowing money, and they tried to shop all around Hollywood, not so they'd make any money off it necessarily, but so that John could join the Directors Guild and Dan could join the Writers Guild because they would have a formal credit. And was finally picked up by a, a truly traditional schlock Hollywood producer whose name escapes me at the moment, but he his big hit was The Blob. Oh, the, <laughs> that's funny you should mention that. Yeah, the original one, there, A Blob, and he bought the rights to Dark Star. That was Jack <laughs> Harris. And, uh, good old Jack Harris. And some credits... And they put another 10, 20 minutes of cheapo special effects in the film, and it got a commercial release, which is what the guys really wanted. If you look at the credits for that student film, it's amazing. Besides Carpenter and O'Bannon, Greg Jean, who went on to build the mothership in Close Encounters, mm -hmm. built the little spaceship in Dark Star. Ron Cobb, who went on to be a set designer for like yeah, the Conan yeah. films, did some of the set design. It's an amazing little film for what it was and for you know the non-existent budget that it had. And after I got a screening of the film uh, with some other people, including John, John and I went over to the Hamburger Hamlet, which was a restaurant chain in Los Angeles, across the street from then Grauman's Chinese Theater at about midnight and had chocolate shakes and discussed how he wanted to be a director and I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it all worked out. After that came the Star Trek logs and then things kind of just snowballed novelization-wise. Well, since we're... Uh Nice segue into Star Trek. Let's talk for a minute about uh, In His Image, which ultimately became 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. B-G-E-R. Feature. Aeronautics and Space Administration. Jim, this was launched more than 300 years ago. Voyager 6 disappeared into what they used to call a black hole. It must have emerged on the far side of the galaxy and fell into the machine planet's gravitational field. The machine inhabitants found it to be one of their own kind. Primitive, yet kindred. 
they discovered in simple 20th century programming. Collect all data possible. Learn all that is learnable. The machines interpreted it literally. They built this entire vessel so that Voyager could actually fulfill its programming. And on its journey back, it amassed so much knowledge, it achieved consciousness itself. For some time, after Star Trek had proved a syndication success after its original run, classic Trek we're talking about for all the Trekkers out there, there was talk about doing reviving Trek in various formats, either a movie of the week, TV movie, uh, a new series, Star Trek Phase One, and uh, in his image, from what I understand, was an original story meant for a TV adaptation? If I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Okay, first the title is in thy image. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, what happened was when I was brought in, was they were at the stage of trying to revive it as a TV series. Of course, as you say, it had gone back and forth for years: movie, movie for TV, TV series, movie. Uh, at the point I came in, it was being discussed as a revived TV series. They asked for story idea submissions from at least 10 different writers. I know Theodore Sturgeon was one, Robert Silverberg, I believe, was one. I was one because of my involvement with the Star Trek logs. So I submitted three possible ideas, one of which was settled on very quickly in thy image. In thy image came from a two-page story outline called Robots Return that Roddenberry had put together. That's two pages, double-spaced type. And he gave it to me, and he said, you know, while you're working on other ideas, can you do anything with this? And out of that, I concocted a brief TV story treatment called In Thy Image. Nothing was heard for a long time. Uh, Star Wars comes out, makes all the money in the world. Close Encounters comes out as a big success. The apocryphal story I heard was that the 12-year-old daughter of Charles Bluthorn, who was the chairman of the board of Gulf and Western, the conglomerate that owned, among other things, Paramount Pictures, went up to her dad and said, Dad, why can't we have a Star Trek movie? Now, referring back to our earlier stories, I don't know if that's true, but sometimes this is the way things happen in the movie business. Regardless, we're now going to make Norway Productions is not a revived TV series, but a big-budget movie. Now, suddenly it's a big-budget movie. This is a real thing in in Hollywood, as opposed to back then, TV series, movie for TV. Uh, Prior to this, they had decided that they were going to try and open the revived TV series with a movie for TV, two-hour movie for TV. In Thy Image was picked as the story best suited, as far as they were concerned, to carry two hours as opposed to one hour. So I was asked to expand it to carry two hours, which I did. Now word comes down, and I'm supposing at this point, because I'm living up in Big Bear Lake, out of the loop. Uh, word comes down, going to do a big budget movie. We don't want them to change their minds again. Again, I'm imagining what's going on at Norway Productions with Roddenberry and his other people. What can we do? We have this story here that's designed to carry two hours. Let's throw that at them and see what happens. And as I read it subsequently, Michael Eisner, who at that time was at Paramount, read the treatment and said, this is our movie. At that point, In Thy Image became the basis of the movie, and I became an instant non-person at Norway Productions of Paramount, (laughs) which is also typical Hollywood. I had no pull. 
I was a young guy, and I was not asked to work on the screenplay. I know more about that, but uh, some of it is libelous and some of it is slandered. <laughs> and even at this late date, there's no point in going into it. Besides, some of it's already on record in various Star Trek blogs. Mm -hmm. There's no point in repeating unpleasant material from half a century, nearly half a century ago. Understood, and uh, amen to that. Yes, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. That's a doctor joke. Are you the new marshal? Yes. Yesterday, a man deliberately went into the atmosphere without his pressure suit. Yes. A couple of days before that, another man cut his suit open on purpose. It happens here. Did you do autopsies? No. Why not? In the first place, the company wanted the body shipped out quickly. In the second place, when a person exposes himself to zero pressure atmosphere, there isn't a whole lot left to inspect. In the third place, you're becoming a nuisance. Yes, I know. I would like a report of all of these incidents that have happened during the past six months. I'd like it really soon, or I might just kick your nasty ass all over this room. That's a Marshall joke. into Outland, uh, Peter Himes' 1981 sci-fi rift on High Noon, starring Sean Connery, Francis Sternhagen, and Peter Boyle, uh, uh, of which you did the novelization to. Uh, our co-host last week, uh, actor Dean Cameron, early in his career, uh, had an acting gig with actress Francis Sternhagen. And uh, he, when he heard that we would be interviewing you, one question came to his mind. 
and we were kind of wondering that um, uh, the, her character in the film is very much kind of based in that Doc Holiday sidekick, wisecracking, smartass mode, and she's freaking awesome at it. And we were kind of wondering if, not unlike the early script drafts for Alien, where the Ripley character was male, if the Francis Turnhagen character in Outland um, was also male, because she just seemed so ballsy in certain respects. So uh, we were wondering if you had seen an earlier script draft. Uh, anyway, basically, we're wondering if you can give us any insight into any early script drafts of Outland uh, for a hungry group of Outland fans here. No, I don't. The one I worked from still had Francis's character as woman. So it was gotcha. actually a later screenplay, and that wasn't it. However, as an interesting side note, I did a chance upon Peter Hyams at a Worldcon in Los Angeles one time. I had a brief conversation with him and complimented him on the movie. And uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did point out, because I make a real nuisance of myself where science is concerned, in science fiction films, about the final scene, where the, you know, the penultimate scene in Outland where they're having the gunfight in an enclosed area where there's no air outside. Thank you. Okay, because that drives me crazy. I'm not nuts. Okay, thank you for saying that. And both of these people, both uh, Connery's character and the bad guy, live there and know that the one thing you don't want to do is punch a hole in your environment. Right. Why would you even have projectile weapons around? And he kind of hummed and hemmed and hawed. And this is just the kind of thing that shows up. But what you generally get from a director at that point, not a writer, but a director is, well, I wanted that shot. (laughs) And I've gotten that from major directors in one form or another. And what drives me crazy as a science fiction writer, and I am by no means as hard a hard science fiction writer as people like Greg Egan or Larry Niven or uh, Stephen Baxter is that you can do these scenes without violating the most basic laws of science, and sometimes it makes for a better scene. But mm-hmm. nobody, the last person anyone wants on a set, and I know this from personal experience, is another writer, much less a science fiction writer. And that's just the way it is, because we have a tendency to say things like that and slow things down. And getting footage in the can, to use an old expression, is more important sometimes than fixing things. Yeah, uh, there's definitely a balancing act involved. For example, there's a famous story about Steven Spielberg and Peter Benchley and the end of Jaws, whereas in the novel Jaws, uh, it ends with the shark getting caught in the neck and sinking and essentially sinking and drowning, which is great in the novel. But Spielberg did the thing with the oxygen tank, uh, I'm sorry, oxygen tank and blowing it up. And when Benchley first heard that idea, he was appalled. And Spielberg's reaction was, well, if I have the audience for the previous hour and 45 minutes or whatever, they will stick with me regardless of how much, regardless of how offensive it was to the natural laws of physics. God, sorry, I can't talk today. And I have to say in that instance, Spielberg was probably right because I remember seeing Jaws in five different theaters the summer it opened and every audience reacted the same exact way where the audience just freaked. So, yeah. Now, there are other films, like, forgive me for saying, Armageddon, where within the first 20 minutes, I totally tuned out 
because you have sparks and fire in the vacuum of space. And it was just so egregious to common sense, let alone science, I just totally checked out. So I guess where do you find that balancing act? And I guess we're stepping into the next topic because one of the things I've always done about your novels and novelizations was a certain respect for the physical sciences. You seem to attempt to have these stories take place in the real world, both emotionally, sociologically, scientifically, etc. And that's one of the things I've always appreciated about your work. But where do you find that line with something like, say, Outland? In that climactic sequence, what was your solution? I mean, I have the novelization right here, but I would like to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Curious as to how you chose to handle that final situation. Well, first, in defense of great white sharks, and I've spent time in the water with great white sharks and out of the water with great white sharks. Uh, they'll bite metal to see if it's edible. But <laughs> you, you would never have one chopped down on an oxygen tank because it would know immediately it's not edible and it wouldn't get stuck anyway. It would just spit it out. But in defense of Steven Spielberg, that was the correct decision for that film. I agree. Uh, you don't want to see the shark sinking slowly down and slowly you go out for popcorn and come back and the shark <laughs> still sinks. It's still swirling to the bottom. Yeah, when he can have smile, you son of a bitch. It's logically accurate, but uh, cinematically it doesn't work. I don't remember what I thought way back with Outland specifically, except that there would be some other kind of weapon besides a six shooter, basically, that you could have used for that scene. Mm -hmm. Whether it would have worked cinematically as well as the guns, I don't know. It's it's pretty blatant violation of the laws of physics, uh, but you know I don't remember what the you know the exact solution I would have proposed was. Mm -hmm. My big example for that, of course, is the black hole, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was going to be Disney's Star Wars back then, which is really funny given today. <laughs> Disney Star Wars now is Disney Star Wars. <laughs> that was going to be their big science fiction slash Star Wars film. Uh, to follow on the coattails of Star Wars and Close Encounters. And it was beautifully done and enormously expensive for the studio. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on the set for just one day. But uh, I read the screenplay and I thought, no, you can't do this. and You can't do that. You can't do this. But, and they didn't have an ending for the film right up till they were finished with the end of the film. That's a famous story, of course. Mm -hmm. Unlike Spielberg, they didn't come up with a solution. But it's a beautiful film to look at. You just have to kind of ignore the story. and it, you just, It's just kind of a shame. But after I was finished with the novelization and it turned it in, in the novelization, I tried to fix as many of the scientific howlers as I possibly could. Now, what happens is sometimes the studio doesn't get involved with the novelization. This was more common years ago than it is now. But in that case, it was a spin-off, right? Just like uh, putting pictures of the black hole on McDonald's drink cups or anything else. Mm -hmm. And nobody questioned anything about the novelization. I doubt that anybody connected with the studio really read the novelization, which was great as far as I was concerned, because I got to fix a lot of things. Uh, for example, people walking around in space without spacesuits. <laughs> it's pretty basic stuff we're talking about here. Or the giant flaming meteor that slams into the spaceship and instead of utterly obliterating it, goes rolling down the center of the spaceship. 
right? Like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. <laughs> right, this is this is one thing that bothers me about all kinds of Hollywood science fiction films. You have these giant spaceships that are basically hollow inside. Hmm. Independence Day is another good example. And it's like, you know, it's really presumably difficult to send giant starships from one starships one star system to another wouldn't you want to use all the available space yeah <laughs> i mean are they playing intergalactic soccer in there over vast <laughs> but that's a whole other thing anyway that meteor goes rolling down the center of the, the ship in the black hole like a giant flaming bowling ball and you know these are, these are real basic things so after the film was over i made up a list of about 70 things that i thought could be fixed cheaply in post-production. Now, you, this is where the fan in me comes in. I have nothing to gain from the film, whether it's a success or failure. I have no royalty rights on the book. It was a flat fee. But as a fan, as the 14-year-old fan, sitting in the back of the theater with his friends criticizing the, the crummy special effects, I want to see these things fixed. Everybody does. And so I sent this list off to Disney with, through my contact with Disney, and never heard a word about it and thought, well, somebody threw it in a trash can. You know, it's, it's a list of suggestions from the novelizer. What does that mean? And never heard anything about it. Years later, I ran into my Disney contact again. And in the course of conversation, I said, I guess, you remember that list I wrote up of things to be fixed in post-production? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, I guess nothing ever happened with that. And he said, no, they had a meeting about it. And people were yelling and screaming and cursing. <laughs> but nothing changed in the film. Because in Hollywood, people wonder why sometimes you get such bad movies. It's because for people who are ego-driven, it is more important to have your name on the picture and have your decisions show up in the final film than it is to make a better film. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And I know people who don't work that way. There aren't many of them, but there are some people who will take suggestions and will say, that's an interesting idea. I don't think it will work because, or we'll consider that. And I know of just a couple of incidents where I did that, not necessarily with 70 suggestions, because the films involved weren't as bad, so they were good films, where they actually did make their way into the final film, and I'm not allowed to talk about them, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. But there are people who listen, and there are people who, this is my film, shut up, go away, I don't care if you're right or not. And that's what's so frustrating as a fan, not even as a writer, but as a fan. Well, speaking as uh, as fans, um, uh, let's just take a quick uh, uh, sidestep into just, well, I guess what I call damn good novelizations in general through the years. To a certain degree, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, there always has been a stigma against novelizations um, that they are pretty much just... PR tie-in in order to help promote the film. And, hey, some novelizations are just that. But, down through the years, there have been some pretty damn good ones. In fact, some of them so good that some people have forgot that they were novelizations. Uh, Isaac Asimov's adaptation of Fantastic Voyage, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, which technically is based on a couple of short stories, but more accurately based on those couple of short stories in conjunction with the screenplay he wrote with Stanley Kubrick. And to this day, there are people who believe, still believe, because 
they were released a little bit before the movies hit the screens, that Fantastic Voyage, the film, and 2001, the film, are based on novels rather than the other way around. But um, there have been some other pretty good ones. Um, I think that Orson Scott's cards, The Abyss, falls into that category. Um, as far as just interesting curios, Christopher Wood, the screenwriter of the Bond films The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, uh, two films which were so far removed from the Ian Fleming original novels that they could be just considered original stories. So he himself did adaptations of those. And um, and one of my favorites, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, <laughs> the novelization of which was uh, written by uh, Irma Crow, the uh, original screenwriter of the film. And it's done in that what I call journal format, kind of a uh, John Watson this is real, this really happened, here are some footnotes and a provenance to prove it did story, right down to, uh, there's even a quote-unquote actual legal documents from the estate, uh, the lawyers of H.G., I'm sorry, H.G. Wells, Orson Wells, uh, saying that no, our client was not under alien influence, and if he was, that would prove that he is not liable in the ensuing events. So <laughs> those, I always felt, were great novelizations because they decided to be great novels in and of themselves. Do you, personally, have a couple of um, novelizations that you feel, just from a literary standpoint, really hold up over the years and are, are, are just pretty darn good in and of themselves? Well, first of all, we need to establish once and for all that it's Big Boutet. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not Big Boot or Big Booty. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, see, I, I know a little trivia, too. I have, I have my own faith. Uh, I, I leave that decision to other people, especially if you're talking about my stuff. But the way I've always felt about novelizations in that regard, it's always amazed me that you know a couple of screenwriters can take a best-selling book like Ben-Hur, it's been a best-selling book ever since it was written, practically, write a screenplay to it and win an Academy Award. <laughs> but that you can't take a screenplay and turn it into a book, a novel, which is a much more difficult job, having written both, and suddenly it's just hack work. Right, right. I, I don't get that. There are good screenplays taken from, there are bad screenplays taken from good books, and there are bad novelizations taken from good films, and the reverse is absolutely true. And I don't think we're at a point in time culturally where people can look at that uh, objectively yet. Probably take another hundred years mm -hmm. and somebody will come back and look at it and say, well, this is probably a pretty good book. Uh, when I get emails, sometimes I do, that say, hey, we thought the book was better than the movie, that's the best compliment you could get. Mm -hmm. uh, I regard all my novelizations as collaborations between myself and the screenwriter. I don't look at it as taking a screenplay by somebody I've never met and churning out uh, 60,000 words or 80,000 words as quickly as I can to cash a check. I think of it as a real collaboration, just as if I was writing, uh, just as if I was writing a book with another author and we were just doing a collaborative novel. I don't see the difference. Christius must be punished and his people with him. My Lord Poseidon, I command you to raise the wind and the sea, destroy Argos, and to make certain that no stone stands, that no creature crawls, I command you to let loose the last of the Titans. Let loose the Kraken! 
The kingdom of Acrisius must be destroyed. Of, of Clash of the Titans was actually um, kind of for me a, pers- a perfect example of everything we've just been talking about because I was I was 11 when that movie came out and like Craig I was raised on the Harryhausen films um, so when any any time I read those mythology stories they were you know they were 20 pages in a children's book so and and I always wanted more from them and 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 I loved them that movie and your novelization was the first it, it was the first time I felt like I was reading. You know, an adult version of uh, not like pornographic, but like aimed at aimed at older than my age group uh, version of, of these stories, um, and that's exactly why I loved it. Is is is, is uh, like I was too young for to actually go and read Homer. But as soon as I started loving this stuff, my dad said, "Well, sooner or later, you're gonna have to read the Iliad." Look, that's way beyond an eleven year old. But Clash of the Titans for me was like the bridge between those children's books and then being able to handle. You know the, the the actual ones that have been handed down for centuries, uh, and that th- that was that was as soon as Craig mentioned that we were going to be talking to you that that and Splinter of the Mind's Eye were the two that just leaped into my head because Clash of the Titans was such a such a huge movie for me when I was eleven, and and that book felt like okay, I'm actually reading something that doesn't have pictures that's actually thick, and it was just it was just the greatest feeling to to get that much further inside those characters than even the movie took me. So, so thank you for that. That was and that, that was one for me a true example of of a book being even more fun than the movie. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I love Greek and myth- Roman mythology as a kid, too. But there wasn't much out there, you know, that uh, was accessible for me at, say, 11 years of age. Yeah. So to get somebody else interested in that, started in that, that's wonderful. Uh, I tried to do with Clash of the Titans, mythologically speaking, the same things I try to do with the science fiction movies, scientifically speaking. Mm-hmm. I would call it hard mythology, if you want, because... Ray, Ray Harryhausen, although he had great respect for Greek mythology, and it inspired a lot of his work, uh, again, if he wanted a shot, things would be changed to accommodate the shot or the movie, even if it went against traditional, say, Greek or Roman mythology. And you can't argue with the result, which are Ray Harryhausen films. I did ask Charles Schneer one time, who was Ray's longtime producer, 
I said, why does Ray just keep doing basically Greek mythology? Can he? Would be wonderful. This, of course, was when the film was uh, still in production. It would be wonderful if Ray would do, say, Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And Schneer said, "Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to have Ray do Lovecraft too, which is a great response from his own producer. But all he wants to do is Greek mythology. So that's why you have so much Greek mythology. Not that he didn't do other things like Valley of Guanji, and, mm-hmm. but that's why you have so much Greek mythology from Ray Harryhausen because that's what inspired him and that's what he wanted to do." Alan Dean Foster. Great name in science fiction. Alan, how are you? Good to see you. What a pleasure. It's been a long time. Has indeed. Alan, you're, um, you're a great writer. It's rare that you can say that. Not only does he manipulate words beautifully, but he has I- ideas. And many of his ideas come from environmental causes. Uh, Science fiction always had this wonderful way of taking people out of their immediate environment, but at the same time teaching them about their real environment in a way that was entertaining. If you can entertain people, and I don't need to tell you that, and at the same time educate them a little bit and teach them a little bit without them sometimes even being aware of it, then that's the best accomplishment that you can do. Uh, I always thought it was better to write a, a book that might sell a few hundred thousand copies and sell, tell people one thing that was important than write a book that had 20 important things that four professors might read nobody else would see. Alan Dean Foster, during a 2010 sit-down with William Shatner uh, at the Shat's uh, My Outer Space social network. Sweet. Well, let's take a quick sidestep into some of your non-novelizations. <clears throat> some of which have been incredibly popular. The Spellsinger, the Pippin Flinks, uh, the Ice Rigger novels, and two of my personal faves, To the Vanishing Point and Slipped. And I have to say, with Slipped, which actually, you know, forgive my French as they say, not trying to blow sunshine up your ass here, it is still <clears throat> one of my single all-time favorite reads, period. Uh, I read that, and I'm not trying to get too political or blue state, red state, conservative, liberal, whatever. But that came out at a time, I guess, at the height of the Reagan era, but probably more specifically at the height of the yuppie era. And there was a lot of blowback, a lot of response to corporate greed at that time, which we could probably use a little more response along those lines nowadays, too. And even uh, the, the... the Rima Williams Destroyer novels. I remember reading a Destroyer novel at the time, around the same time that Slip came out, uh, called Sue Me, where you had a character named Robert Dastro who was working for insurance companies, and they were planning airplane crashes and Bhopal, India, DuPont kind of accidents and poisonings, and they even had a rock star die during an electrical uh, accident, an electrocution on stage. Basically, they were having these huge insurance policies, and they'd have these accidents, and they would cash in. So in the arts, there was definitely a huge blowback to the yuppie mentality at the time, and I'm not saying that Slipped was a conscious uh, commentary on this, but I think it is common that genre material will make commentary, intended or not, on the era in which it is produced. And in Slip, you have this kindly old gentleman, Jake Pickett, who lives in this financially depressed era, uh, area, 
and he uses his abilities, these telekinetic abilities and what have you, to entertain the neighborhood kids, and he telekinetically communicates with his niece, who is uh, is crippled, and eventually he uses his abilities, he and his niece combine, and take on these corporate yuppies who are trying to um, exploit the neighborhood for, for millions of dollars. And it's a fantastic story. And it's always befuddled me. How come no one has ever adapted it to film? It is such a visual, emotional story. I mean, beyond E.T., beyond Mighty Joe Young, Jake Pickett is one of the most amazing characters I've ever read in literature. And I'm just curious as to why, or do you have any ideas, why has no one ever picked this up for a film? The answer to that is I was living in Big Bear Lake at the time. And below the San Bernardino Mountains is the city of San Bernardino and the city of Redlands, but mostly San Bernardino. And in that area, there are a lot of, you know, people say, where do your ideas come from? There are a lot of huge, you know, repositories, or were huge repositories of things like used tires and scrapped cars. And from there to seeing, you know, a kind of concealed chemical dump was very easy to do. And as you say, there was a lot of that in the news at the time, uh, the whole Love Canal incident was still fairly fresh in the, in the public's mind. And that's where one idea that came from, uh, because you could go, you could drive by this area, and we did. Every time we went from Big Bear down into Los Angeles, you would see these places. And that's where the idea for the book came from, was from actually passing places perhaps not that uh, uh, dangerous, although I don't know, but places like that. And when you see them all the time, it kind of sticks in your mind, and you think, well, how can I work that into a story? The character of Jake Pickett came from two things. First of all, having grown up being inspired by the Uncle Scrooge stories of Karl Barks, mm -hmm. I was always taken by the absence of senior citizen main characters in films and books. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be interesting to have a senior citizen character. The other one, which is something I do in a lot of books, is you have characters who have certain powers and special abilities, but they're actually very ordinary people. Flinks is another one. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily uh, view them as special or unique, and they don't sometimes even want them. So I put that together with the older senior citizen idea with the things that I was seeing as I was driving to Los Angeles, and that's where the whole idea of Slipped came from. Uh, years and years ago, one person had an option on it, and nothing ever came of it, as is the case in 99.9% .9 of options. But I do get occasionally, still to this day, occasional email from somebody saying, why can't somebody make that into a movie? And part yeah. of it is, a large part of it, as you guys both know, is just exposure. If mm -hmm. I, you know, People say, why aren't more of your, your original stories made into films? Well, I would have to move back to Los Angeles, right. have to be nice to people I don't want to be nice to, <laughs> I'd have to go to parties, and I don't like parties. I'd much rather talk like we're talking right now because you can actually have a conversation. And while I'm perfectly capable of sitting in on a pitch, which I've done, a formal pitch, it's not something I really like to do. I'm much better promoting other people's, <laughs> other people's <laughs> stuff than my own stuff. I tend to get a little embarrassed and red-faced about tooting my own horn. Well, that's not how the film business works. Right. Uh, you need the biggest horn you can toot. And so I sit here in Prescott, Arizona, and I write my books, and if anything happens with films, that's fine, and if it doesn't at this point, that's fine, too. 
sure, I'd love to see something like Slipped or this. There's a guy in Australia named Trevor Howis. He's even got a Facebook page up for it. He's been trying to make Spellsinger into a film for years and years. Wow. And he's still beavering away at it and working as hard as he can. A lot of stuff is under option. Into the Out of was just optioned to an outfit called Wilkinson Productions oh, yeah? in Great Britain. And there's a guy in Hong Kong has, has a book called Sagramanda, which is all set in near future India that he's trying to make in the film. Wow. So things, things putter along. Yeah. Uh, a writer, a fine writer named, uh, uh, just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on one second. Yeah, you're, uh, you're as old as I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if a lot of hard drive is full. <laughs> right, <laughs> and you only get rid of you only make more space by eliminating old material. Don't think some other stuff, yeah. Right, uh, Joel Burke. Okay, uh, and I wrote a screenplay, an original screenplay called Olympus, which is set, uh, which is based on the idea that the well, I don't want to give it away, but it's about the first human settlement on Mars, which would make a nice follow-up to The Martian. Yeah which is not about a settlement uh, so much as it is a scientific expedition, right. which has been optioned for real money, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, not $100 in a Starbucks coupon. <laughs> <laughs> to a company called Los Angeles Beijing Productions mm. for possible production in China. Wow. And so there are all kinds of things going on, but it's been, there have been all kinds of things going on for a long time. Sneak welcomes composer performer Farzam Salami. Farzam, it's great having you here, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Your music, uh, while very much based in Middle Eastern sounds, encompasses a broad spectrum of musical styles. I mean, there's a little classical, there's a little jazz, there's a little bit of contemporary. Uh, could you give us a little bit of background as to um, how you came into music and how and why? these different sounds manage to uh, connect in your work music and the story that i how i become a, a musician as well as a composer uh i was so young that my dad uh, got to understand about my talent <clears throat> and he was um, he was familiar with some music especially iranian music so he was singing one day and i was almost two or three so i was tapping on some stuff and then he noticed that i'm i'm, I'm following the right beat this is how he noticed that I have the talent for music. He got me some percussion instruments. And uh, when I was around 10, I started playing piano. And uh, along playing piano, I started playing so many different, mostly Middle Eastern instruments. And I was eight, I was 17 that I had my first concert in Iran, uh, and my, as well as my first album. Then I went to Europe tour when I was 18. And I had uh, more than two, um, four or five tours all around the world. Then I made a decision to come to America because I always wanted to do film scoring. 
and I got admission from uh, Berkeley College of Music and a bunch of other universities. And I came to Los Angeles. I was never able to make it to Boston because of my dad. It's a long story though. And I stayed in Los Angeles <clears throat> and studied uh, film scoring mostly by myself. So the genre of music that I do is uh, mostly fusion music, which is world music. And it's based on the common aspects of uh, Middle Eastern and Western music. Could you tell us a little something about Utopia of Peace? Yes, Utopia of Peace, um, it's an orchestral song. Uh, the story behind Utopia is that uh, President Obama is the first president that he ever said Happy Nowruz, which is Iranian New Year celebration. And um, I was pretty impressed when he said that. Um, so I always wanted to come to America and be able to like say thank you to him. And uh, the first thing that came up to my mind was to compose a song and send it to White House. And I did this and sent it to White House. And then I was honored to have a letter back from him and the First Lady with their signatures. So uh, this was the story. It was like a song for peace. And we talk about peace. It's actually mm, understanding two different cultures and respecting two different cultures. This is what peace is. So I wanted to do the same thing regarding music, staying faithful to the new genre of music, using brass and strings and different chords, which is more mostly Western, at the same time using uh, Middle Eastern and Iranian instrument. And uh, the whole song was recorded and um, engineered by myself in my own studio. Final question. You recently held a live concert in L.A. with the gifted vocalist Kadesh. Do you have any plans of any future concerts uh, coming up next year? Uh, yes, of course. Um, on my website, I have all the events Farzam, at farzamsalami.com, as well as social media with the same name. But um, this was the first time that an Iranian producer is um, producing an American singer. And it was the first time that we were mixing gospel and kind of pop and R&B music with Middle Eastern stuff. And it was very good. Sold out concert. And then we're planning to have a, a U.S. tour maybe at the in the middle of uh, 2016, starting from New York. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. And um, I would love to have you back again sometime if, uh, if, if you would love to. Of course. Thank you so much. Thanks for your invitation. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. To learn and hear more of Farzam Salami, check out his official website, farzamsalami.com. That's F-A-R-Z-A-M-S-A-L-A-M-I. And also his SoundCloud and YouTube channels. Amazing work. The Movie Sneak is once again honored to present Farzam Salami with the stirring Utopia of Peace. Plant the tree of friendship that bears the fruit of fulfillment. 
نهال دشمنی برکن که رنج بی شما I guess um, we uh, have to end with um, the whole Star Wars universe. And I realize that, um, yes, you are the... Uh, you wrote the novelization to The Force Awakens, and we can't talk too much about that. And we don't really have to, because you've done so much other stuff in the Star Wars universe, starting with the um, novelization to the original film. Actually, before we get into that, and I mentioned this in an email the other day, if you could just 
confirm or deny for me a couple of nagging things that have been on my mind for many, many years. Um, there, are, there have been novelizations which have been credited to the filmmakers over the years. Star Wars was credited the novelization to George Lucas, which in recent days I discovered was Alan Dean Foster. Um, Star Trek The Motion Picture was credited to Gene Roddenberry. Close Encounters of the Third Kind was credited to Steven Spielberg. And I'm not saying that Alan Dean Foster wrote those novelizations. <laughs> but you know, but, he didn't. <laughs> no. But did he? <laughs> <laughs> the only book I've ever ghostwritten, the only book that doesn't have my name on it, is the first Star Wars film. And that's because George wanted his name on it. I have no problem with that. It's his story. He wrote it all, and I just made a book out of it. And I, never had, I was contractually obligated to not say anything about that. In other words, to deny. I had people who recognized, if you will, my style insofar as yeah. I might have a style. And they would come up to me and say, you know, this, this sure reads like one of your books. You sure you didn't do this? And these were longtime friends in some cases. And I would have to lie to blankly to their face and say, nope, I didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> and that went on for years until a book came out called Skywalking, The Life and Times of George Lucas by Dale Pollock, in which Mr. Pollock inadvertently, I suppose, mentioned that I was writing the no had written the novelization, at which point it seemed kind of silly to continue denying it, and my agency got a release from Lucasfilm uh, saying that, yes, I had written it, and George has been very gracious about it ever since. Okay. Uh, there's no a lot of time has passed and there's no reason not to but I have nothing to do with the Star Trek novelization I believe Roddenberry wrote that himself mm -hmm. and certainly nothing to do with Close Encounters or any any other book I've written has my name on it so okay all cool I just had to clear that up for my own personal fan sanity but um, diving into the Star Wars uh, novels starting with uh, obviously there's the original novel but you also did Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which for all intents and purposes was the first Star Wars product, Star Wars literary product, which came along after the success of the first film, and fans just ate it up, and to this day there are fans who feel it would have made a great Star Wars film. And of course, we shimmy into uh, the other Star Wars novelizations, or, 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 well, not really novelizations, but the standalone and spin-off novels, which in some respects were kind of precursors to Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, where you have stories taking place in between a couple of films. And now, of course, we go into The Force Awakens. Out of curiosity, with those latter Star Wars books, and even The Force Awakens, who approached you about adapting them and why did they approach you I mean it's kind of a no-brainer but again we kind of want to hear it from the horse's mouth well there's a wonderful gal well the original we'll start with Splinter of the Mind's Eye the original contract called for two books the novelization of the film uh, Star Wars and a sequel novel the idea being that George who is a I think a great student of Walt Disney wanted more material available for fans in the event that the film uh, generated interest. So I was given the job of writing an original novel utilizing certain characters from the first film. Uh, I couldn't use Harrison Ford because he hadn't signed on for any future Star Wars projects, and therefore I couldn't use Chewbacca because he was Han Solo's buddy. So it had to focus on Luke, Leia, and to a certain extent Darth Vader. Uh, 
Also, um, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher hadn't concluded negotiations for the use of their likenesses in any future Star Wars merchandising, which is why Ralph McQuarrie painted the cover to Splinter of the Mind's Eye, showing those characters from behind. <laughs> uh, the only uh, constraints that George put on me for writing Splinter was uh, I was to write a book that could be filmed on a low budget. In the event that Star Wars was not a complete flop and not a runaway success, but that made enough money to justify a sequel, he wanted to be able to have something available if he so chose. That could be filmed on a low budget, which meant utilizing as many props, costumes, backgrounds, etc. from the first film as possible. That's why I set Splinter on a, sh on a fog-shrouded planet, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the only real change was that uh, when the book was done, and by the way, Splinter was finished before the film Star Wars was released. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, the book was completely done before the film came out. Uh, and uh, the only change George made was I originally opened the book with a fairly complex battle in space above the planet Yavin, which is where Luke and Leia are forced down, and George had me take that out and start with essentially chapter two, because the first chapter, the space battle, would have been expensive to film. Now, of course, that wouldn't be a consideration, but subsequent to the release of the film, uh, George could do anything he wanted to, and there was no reason to do a film that could be filmed on a low budget, and we got Empire Strikes Back, which is fine with me. Uh, I always thought for years that Splinter would have made a really nice movie for TV set between what is now episodes four and five, but it just didn't happen, and that sometimes things don't happen, and that's fine. I had no problem with that either. After that, and after they started, after Delray Valentine started doing spin-off books, and as you say, standalones, I was asked if I was interested in doing any, and I had a lot of other projects going at that time, not just novelizations, but a lot of original work, and frankly, it just didn't interest me. But years went by, and I was contacted by Shelley Shapiro, who was and still is a uh, the wonderful editor of the Star Wars line at Del Rey, and would I be interested in doing an original novel that actually was a link filled in part of the gap between episodes one and two? And that was much more interesting to me than doing something about some obscure character who might or might not exist actually in the Star Wars universe uh, somewhere else in the story. And so I did a book called The Approaching Storm. Mm-hmm. And then time went, more time passes, and Shelley asked if I would be interested in doing the novelization of the new film. And I just thought from a fan standpoint, trying to stand outside it a little bit and look at it you know, from a different viewpoint, that it would be fun to have the continuity, to have the person who did the novelization of the first film do the novelization of the new film after, you know, essentially 40 years. <laughs> and frankly, when I was writing the book, it was as if no time at all had passed. When I, uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was really neat. I don't know a better way to put it. It was just really neat to do it. My, my first uh, job, again, Craig knows I do this. I, I tend to, movies are sort of like an autobiography for me. Like, I, I, other people have family. I have fictitious characters that are, that are as much of, you know, that's how I kind of, parse my life through and and, and uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye I bought from the exact same paperback rack in a Ben Franklin uh, pharmacy 
uh, in Edwardsville, Illinois. On that same rack, there was another book called The Force of Star Wars by a guy named uh, Frank Allnut. And you know, I always remember his name because of Charlie Allnut and the African Queen. It's the only place I've ever seen that name. So The Force of Star Wars turned out to be, since I was living in Illinois in Bible country in, in the 70s, turned out to be this thing that takes the whole first Star Wars movie and turns it into a Bible analogy. Um, I bought it because I thought it was going to teach me how to levitate stuff with my hands, right? And no, the entire thing was just supposed to turn me back to the church, and it, it utterly failed in that respect because all it did was annoy me that, you know, I, I wanted Yoda's guide to life before Yoda even existed, and this was not that. Uh, Spoon of the Mind's Eye bought, I'm pretty sure on the exact same day with that book, like I got about, about 30 pages into that thing, got really annoyed with it, let it go. I was eight, nine years old. Eight years old, I think. And then I started reading Spoon of the Mind's Eye, and it just, I, I've never read a, I don't think I've ever, before or since, read a book so fast. Um, and again, kind of like with Clash, Clash of the Titans, this was my first kind of earliest uh, handling of a, of a book geared at uh, over my age level. And uh, I just remember like the thing that kind of really stuck with me at the time was I hadn't read violence like that. Like, I hadn't read Luke and Leia, I hadn't read the way Luke and Leia bleed in that story. Uh, and get the crap kicked out of him in that story. I, I'd never read anything like that before, and it, it just really struck me. Like I, I, it, 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 it hung on me the way we all uh, were sucker punched when Vader said, "I'm your father." Like it was at, to eight or nine years old to be reading, you know, these heroes that everything seemed like yeah, the shots are fired at them, but they always miss, you know. But actually, suddenly now we're they're really in pain, and and I'm reading that pain in way more detail than I would get it from from a film. Um, Yes, one of the minds I was 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 kind of a, it was it was awakening for me and and um, uh, and it just it 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 pretty much erased the error that was the force of Star Wars. So thank you for for saving me from that piece of crap. <laughs> well, you know, one thing among many things I learned from Carl Barks, mm-hmm. again the creator of Uncle Scrooge and all the great Uncle Scrooge Donald Duck comic books, was never talk down to your audience, mm-hmm. even if you're writing for kids. And I have here particularly the Star Trek logs in mind. Mm-hmm. Never mm-hmm. talked down to kids. In fact, Barks got censored. One of his earliest uh, comics called Back to the Klondike has Scrooge McDuck as a young duck prospector in the Klondike. And he goes into a bar, a saloon, and he gets rolled and mugged and dumped outside of town and goes back into town to recover his property and beats up everybody in the saloon. And that was censored from the comic. It was restored. It's been restored in later editions of, of the comic. And I remember reading that when it, you know, came back and I thought, yeah, that's the real Carl Barks. This is a comic book for kids, but this is real life. I didn't even know what being rolled in mud meant <laughs> the first time I'd encountered it. I said, oh, right, right. The girl he was having a drink with. You gotta remember, this is a, a, a Dell comic book. Right. He drugs him and he gets dumped out and he robs him and he gets dumped outside of town. So first time in literature, if you can call it, and I can't call it literature, I ever encountered a character, a female character who was really bad. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know, you don't see that in comic books for kids. You know, female characters are superheroes or simpering or, you know, out and out villains. This was very subtle and sophisticated. The box was a huge influence. You know, there's a, a book of his art with, uh, an introduction and an afterword by Lucas and Spielberg. Wow. wow. Not a lot of fine artists can claim that, you know. Yeah. Guys who make balloon dogs and uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. I'm sorry sorry for the digression, but... No, 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 no not at all. No, 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 I was actually no. kind of wondering who some of your other influences were, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. 
I always say Herman Melville and Karl Barks, and then if it's a, a mundane interviewer, I have to explain who Karl Barks was. <laughs> <laughs> but for everybody else, it's like a secret handshake. Right, right, like, exactly. You know, oh, you read Superman, yeah. You read G.I. Joe, yeah. You read mm-hmm. Uncle Scrooge. Oh, Uncle Scrooge, okay. <laughs> That's a special thing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyway, awesome. go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I... That's pretty much all of the um, list of questions I personally had. Uh, I mean, is there anything you would like to just toss up? Oh, no, no. Actually, there is one more thing. I got to talk about Pale Rider. I shot him. Forever. The bullets kept hitting him. Forever. It was him, wasn't it? It's that marshal you warned us about. Stark Vernon and his deputies. He said, tell the preacher to come in the morning. Why you? Don't you warn us about this Stockburn fella? Sounded like you knew him. Is it true? You are going into town tomorrow, ain't you? I remember, um... One of the awesome things, uh, the novelization of Pale Rider, uh, like a lot of novelizations, appeared a few months before the movie opened. And I was actually not surprised, but shocked to see that the novelization was by Alan Dean Foster. And then after thinking about it for a minute, not so surprised. Because I remember when Clint Eastwood had done uh, High, Plains, High Plains Drifter. Uh, I remember the original script hearing that the original script was a bit more straight straightforward. That... Um, there's a sheriff character who's killed early in the story. The townsfolk do nothing to defend him. This mysterious stranger comes into town and uh, starts wreaking vengeance on the town because of their sins of omission, if you will. From what I understand in the original script, it was cleanly delineated that that character was a relative or a brother or a cousin of that sheriff, and he was coming to you know get revenge for the death of his um, family member. In the Clint Eastwood film, he decided to make it more vague to leave it to the audience to wonder whether or not he was actually some relative or some supernatural avenging angel of sorts. And I remember when seeing that the novelization The Pale Rider, you know, with a character called Preacher, um, hit the stands, I was like, oh, this must be a little bit more than a standard straight-ahead western. And this is, as much as I love The Outlaw Josie Wales, this was not going to be another The Outlaw Josie Wales. And I had that idea just because the novelization was by Alan Dean Foster. Now, I guess kind of like um, Dean's earlier question about the original script to Outland and whether or not the Francis Sternhagen character was male, I always wondered if the original script to Pale Rider was as vague as the final film was or was a little more clearly delineated who Preacher was. No, it's exactly the way you just described it, and that's great. Because anytime you can leave the audience guessing a little bit at the end and talking about the end, yeah, without doing something like The Sopranos, which is hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer, right, and saying talk about this. But when you can leave it with that, well, was he? Wasn't he? Is he? Isn't he? And you remember, he just kind of rides off into the distance at the end in the film, and then suddenly he's just not there. Right. Exactly. And you're left with, did he vanish, or did he just ride over the next hill? Right. And I think that's a perfect way to end the film. And I always thought of the character, just personally, maybe because I wanted to, as being some sort of supernatural character. 
Now, obviously, he has some relation to the bad guys because yeah. Cleef recognizes him. Says, yeah, it's you. you, yeah. But, you know, that doesn't doesn't take away from the possibility that he's some sort of supernatural character that Van Cleef has encountered before. Mm-hmm. And I love the way the film handles that whole ambiguity. In the book, I tried to maintain that, and uh, but I always like to think of him as a supernatural character. I once asked Richard Matheson oh, wow. uh, about Duel, and mm-hmm. I was oh, cool. talking to him, and I said, you know, that's, that's one of the greatest uh, horror movies I've ever seen, because you never see anybody in the truck yeah. in the TV movie. But in the extended version, there are a couple of shots of a booted character getting in and out of the cab of the truck. Right. Y- yes, there is. Yes. And I said, you know, why do you, you know why was that added into the extended edition? I thought it was so great without that mm-hmm. because you never know if the truck's alive or if there's somebody in yeah. the truck. And he said, oh, I always thought there was a driver in the truck, hmm. and it just crushed me. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, because I appreciated it as a horror movie. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, you know, I, I never thought of that. I remember seeing Duel when it first aired, right? And uh, and then I remember watching the extended version or theatrical version, if you will, where yeah. you see the boots and the trucker. And even though without the boots and the trucker getting out of the truck, it's still. I mean, okay, forgive me, Killdozer, which I believe is based on a Theodore Sturgeon story, right. the old TV movie, was a fun movie. It's certainly not as intense and gripping as Duel, but you have that almost Christine, Stephen King, Trucks kind of thing where you don't know whether or not this is some physical screwed-in-the-head trucker who just got pissed off one day and is trying to run this guy off the road, or whether there is some supernatural thing behind it, and if so, why? To a certain degree, leaving that space for the audience to read into it and just to get lost uh, yeah, it, it, it's, um, it does make it a much more interesting story. So, yeah, I totally agree with you there. That's the one case where I would have had a sit-down drag-out with the original author and say, this is better. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's too late, and it's really hard to do that with the author of the original story. That actually makes me want to go back and both reread and rewatch Pale Rider. That's, that's really exciting. Cause I, I mean, it's, I've always liked that one, but it's never been... Yeah, I liked it. It was it wasn't it wasn't high high on my list. It wasn't low on my list for each. I mean, it's a damn sight better than the rookie, but it's uh, you know I don't think of it as as uh, uh, good, the bad, and the ugly. It's uh, I used to. I mean, I remember Roger Ebert. I think saying that it was he kind of considered it as sort of an Eastwood's greatest hits movie, where you know many elements pulled from. Uh, in Ebert's opinion, better movies. And I mean, I was 14 at the time. So, okay, yep, Ebert said it must be true. And and I always liked it. And I never really uh, uh, hung on it that heavily until about, I don't know, probably, you know, it's probably Craig and I talked about it about three years ago. And I went and rewatched it and loved it. Went and uh, dug out my novel and, and, and dug that too. But now with this context, I, I kind of want to go back to both of those all over again because I, I, I just, well, I feel like Ebert is suddenly very, very wrong. And that's a rare thing for me. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I always felt, not fantasy, but there were really only two cri- movie critics I've read who I think really understand science fiction and actually probably read or read science fiction. And one was Ebert. I mean, he became my yeah. hero as a critic when he put Dark City on his list of ten best Yeah, characters. same here. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, all right, he gets it. He got it, yeah. And the other one who's still writing is Ty Burr for the Boston Herald. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. really yeah. Under- is a fine critic, you know, generally, but really understands science fiction. The rest of them, they're just kind of like general Hollywood producers. They're not really there. Mm-hmm. 
They're just not there. But it's changing because you've got guys growing up who read science fiction when they were right. kids, which is a big difference from 30, 40 years ago. Well, I guess uh, it's about time to wrap this up. Um, all I can say is this has been freaking awesome. This has been a freaking awesome hour. So much for, fun. For yeah. Well, you're welcome. It's you know, like I said, uh, I get nothing from making suggestions about a film when I'm doing a novelization uh, as a writer. But as a fan, you want to go into the theater and spend your you know your money and you know mortgage your house to buy your popcorn and soda. <laughs> uh, just as and you want to see a good film just as much as anybody else right and uh, and that's why I make a fuss when I'm doing the novelizations it's like why can't we keep this and it doesn't hurt the film and it makes the book better and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose but you try mm -hmm. exactly okay guys alright thanks, thanks so man so much sir I totally appreciate it so much fun yeah right, thank you care. so much sir that'll about do it for this edition of the movie sneak Big time thanks to Alan Dean Foster for taking time out of his uber-busy schedule to chat with us. And if there's one thing, among many, I take away from this sit-down is the fact that first and foremost, Alan is a fan of the genre himself. Uh, I've always felt that passion is contagious, and when you read Foster's books, you genuinely feel as though you've entered the playground of someone's dreams, and not just some, eh, not bad, but no great Jake's movie tie-in gig for the bucks kind of thing. So thank you, Alan, for keeping the fires of creativity stoked in our hearts all these years. And uh, for those eager to read his recent novelization of Star Wars The Force Awakens, the release date is January 5th. That'll definitely be my first weekend read of the new year. You and me both. And huge thanks to We Found Microphones and our musical guest, Farzam Salami. Definitely look them up and check them out on SoundCloud and YouTube. A big shout-out to Bob Cho and Deshaun Carr of Art19, and a big-time shout-out and thanks to our listeners for sharing your very busy hours during this holiday season with us. Next time, we have an awesome sit-down with writer-director David Mickey Evans, best known as the screenwriter of the fantasy drama Radio Flyer and writer-director of everyone's favorite coming-of-age baseball film, The Sandlot. David's alternately hilarious and poignant as he shares some stories from his childhood, his transition into a writer, and his first days in Hollywood as a no-name, no-money-in-his-pockets newbie finding himself in office meetings with guys like Richard Donner and John Peters. We'll talk about his little-known gem of a film, The Final Season, with Sean Astin and Powers Booth, and his upcoming true-life drama based on the story of legendary and inspirational high school football coach Ed Thomas. This one's like film grad school, so definitely stop by and give us a listen. You'll be glad you did. Until then... I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com. And thanks for joining us at The Movie Sneak. See you next time, up there in those cheap seats. <laughs>